0: Son and Holy Spirit we praise you and Lord Jesus Christ we exalt you and honor you and glorify you for all that you have done for us and for this, this incredible thing that we celebrate this morning and in these weeks to come receive these gifts so that your renown Lord Jesus your renown might sound forth here and to the ends of the earth thank you for being a great king Thank you for being a gracious king. In your name do we pray. Amen. Please uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter. Beginning in verse 26, while you're turning there, let me uh, encourage you. Uh, I'll invite you, but but I really want to uh, encourage you to join us this evening for the service of Lessons and Carols. It's a delightful service. It's a it's really a wonderful way to begin to hear again uh, the story of redemption that has unfolded for us across the pages of Scripture. So uh, it's at 5 o'clock. Um, please plan to come out. It's, it's a really refreshing and delightful time. Uh, and with that, let me uh, read and invite you to follow along. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, the birth of Jesus foretold. End. No end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word for his people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, come and walk among us and tell us about yourself. Tell us about yourself, Jesus, and tell us that we may have reason to hope. Come and open our minds and our hearts to receive the riches contained for us in your word. Do this by the mighty working of your spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This is uh, the seventh. Advent season that Barb and I have been here in Indian River County, and every year, I think, so this would be the seventh time, I've made reference to Christmas trees and Christmas lights and all of the stuff that goes on at this time of the year. I, I want to thank uh, Amy Shaver and Laura McKellar and all of the people who came out yesterday, a bunch of them. I don't even know who all was here, but they all came out and they put this stuff up. And it's delightful and it's wonderful. And, and the question always is, why do we do this? Right? That's what I've asked you every year. And I, I encourage you to think about this again. Lucy is coming to town, December 22nd. And, and we're going to spend a good bit of the time that Lucy is with us protecting our Christmas tree. <laughs> Keeping her from yanking ornaments off of the lower branches of the Christmas tree. Why do we do this? Well, we do it, as I've said to you, every year. We do it because something happened. Something happened in the past. And we do this every year. And not only do we do this, but people who don't even know what it is that happened in the past do this. But we all do it, whether we realize it or not, because something in the past happened. And all of this becomes a testament, a testimony to that thing that happened so the question is what happened what happened this is a fascinating passage this passage that we've read it's a wonderful passage there's a lot of naming that goes on in this passage Uh, the word call or called is used four times it's used three times with respect to jesus it's used one time with respect to elizabeth names in the bible have significance They're not chosen simply because they have a rhythmic quality to them or there's something aesthetically appealing about them. They're chosen because names correspond to the reality of the things to which they refer. And so Elizabeth, who has a name, the name Elizabeth has another name. Her name Elizabeth means oath of God, promise of God. But she has another name, doesn't she? She's called barren. That's what identifies her. She's an old woman and she's barren. It isn't Elizabeth that identifies her. It is her barrenness. And her friends, her contemporaries, her peers would have viewed her as being at some level accursed. Because she didn't have children. Did she have any idea? Did her parents have any idea? This is wonderful, this passage. Did did her parents have any idea when they gave her the name Elizabeth, oath of God, promise of God, that the day would come when that name would swallow up the other name and devour the other name, devour the thing by which she was identified? Oh, there is such hope in Elizabeth swallowing up the identity of barrenness. And then there are these other three instances where Jesus, the Son, is identified. He's called Jesus which translates the word, the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Redeemer or Deliverer. He's called the Son of the Most High. And in verse 35, He will be called Holy and the Son of God. Those are the names that He's given. That's what He will be. That's how He will be identified. But here's what I want you to notice. Here's what I want us to see. The stress, the emphasis in this passage, in what Gabriel communicates to Mary, is this. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever And His kingdom will have no end. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart... Prepare Him room. Let heaven and nature sing. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Who comes? The King comes. What happened? The King came. And when the king came, his kingdom came with him. And when the king came and his king came with him, the king planted his kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And the day will come when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. What happened? The king came. And the kingdom came with him. Now, you've got to try and put yourself in Mary's shoes for a couple of seconds. You've got to try and imagine yourself being a young woman. Presumably a young woman. That's the sense that you get from the text. That's what the sense Is from the history of the church and the commentators as they were a young woman. You've got to put yourself in Mary's shoes for a second and think about the impact of these words. Think about the impact of this circumstance. I mean, think for the first, in, in the first place. Think about the scandal that this is. Right? Here is this woman, this young woman who is Pregnant, but without a husband. That's scandalous in her day, in her culture. Matthew tells us that Joseph wanted to put her away privately because it was so scandalous. So it's one thing for Mary to have to go to her parents and to say to her parents, <laughs> to say to her neighbors and friends, <laughs> I'm going to have a baby. and if you? Any of you have watched Downton Abbey, have you seen the second season of Downton Abbey? And you know the servant girl who has to deal with the major in the army and she's pregnant and it's a problem and it's scandalous. But then go to the next level. Mary not only has to tell her parents that she's pregnant, but she reports presumably. Now this isn't in the text, I'm just connecting dots and reading between the lines. She's got friends, she's got parents. She's going to talk openly about this with them. It's going to become evident at some point to everybody that she's going to have a child. But then she goes to her parents and says, get this. This child that I'm going to give birth to, this is what the angel said to me. This is what Gabriel said. See, now we're we're kind of crossing over from being merely scandalous and in the eyes of people immoral, Now we're sort of crossing a line over into craziness. This angel who appeared to me told me that this child is going to inherit the throne of David. That this child is going to be a king and he's going to be given the throne of David and he will be enthroned on that throne and his Kingdom will never end. See, it's one thing to be scandalous. It's another thing to be certifiably nuts. This is shocking, folks. Incomprehensible. I, I keep making reference. To my friend Robert Greenberg, who has this fabulous series of lectures, how to listen to and understand great music. And all the time he's trying to put me back in the days of Mozart or Beethoven. And he's trying to encourage me to understand that the music of of Mozart in the ears of his contemporaries would have been shocking, particularly the music he composed later in life. And that Beethoven's Third Symphony and Fifth Symphony and Ninth Symphonies were unlike anything anybody had heard. And while people fell in love with them, eventually they were shocking and jarring in the ears of Beethoven's contemporaries. And they thought he was nuts. But that's what happened, friends. The king came. And when the king came, his kingdom came with him. That's what happened all those years ago. This idea of a king and a kingdom, this sort of trajectory of a king and a kingdom, is pervasive in the scriptures. It's pervasive. We don't think in terms of kings and kingdoms, do we? We've just been through an election cycle. We think in terms of democracies. But the Bible thinks in terms of kings and kingdoms. And this idea of king and kingdom is pervasive throughout the scriptures. Let me let me take you if I can on a quick tour. Just a quick tour of this idea as you find it in the scriptures. The Psalms. The 90s. You should read this week. The 90s. 90, 91, 92, 96, 97, 99. Listen to 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are everlasting. 95, verse 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all the gods. 96, verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 97, 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. 99, verse 1 The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. We go from rejoicing in 95 to trembling in 99. Rejoice yet tremble, mole and rat in the presence of the great God Pan, never more safe, and yet trembling in the presence of massive, overwhelming majesty and power and glory. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. God is King and He does reign. That should be so deeply comforting and encouraging to you. It's an unseen king, an unseen rule, an unseen reign, except as that rule and reign evidences itself in the lives of the subjects of the king. God is king. He reigns. It starts all the way back. In Genesis 1, the whole structure of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4 is simply to show this, the one true God who has created everything, who is the author of everything, is enthroned as Lord and King over all that exists. That's the trajectory of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. That's the pervasive theme throughout the scriptures. But there was a rebellion, wasn't there? The Lord is king. The Lord is the creator. The Lord is the king over all things, but there's been a rebellion. And now, and some of you know this more acutely, more poignantly, more presently than some of the rest of us, but we all know it. Because of that rebellion, now the whole world labors under an oppressive regime. The whole world does. The whole world labors under an oppressive regime the regime of death, the regime of sin, the regime of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. That's what flows out of Genesis 3. The awful consequences of the sin of the man and the woman. You've heard me say this a thousand times, but I'll keep saying it for my own benefit and for yours, for ours. We will never understand the gospel until we understand Genesis 3. There's been a rebellion and the whole world labors under an oppressive regime flowing out of the disobedience of Adam. A regime of death and sin and Satan. But the first words that are spoken after that terrible cataclysmic rebellion, after that oppressive regime begins to take hold in the whole of the creation. The first words spoken by God are spoken to the serpent and they are words of hope and promise for the people of God. He will crush your head. You will bruise His heel, but He will crush Your head. That's the first gospel promise in the whole of the scriptures. Samuel Rutherford has said the whole Bible is but a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15. That understates it just a bit. But But it does help us to understand. That that seminal promise, that seed that is spoken in Genesis 3.15 is a thing which germinates and grows and the shoots of more beautiful and more comprehensive and more glorious promises emerge from that initial promise. And all taken together, they are the promise that through the seed of the woman, a conqueror will come, a king will come, and he will reign. And in his rule and reign, he will crush under his feet the evil tyrant Satan, and he will eradicate from his realm every evidence, all of the residue of sin and the fall, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That initial promise gets enlarged, doesn't it? It gets enlarged across the Old Testament. I've got to be so brief about this, just touching on a couple of passages, but we're taking a tour, aren't we? We're making a quick sweep across the Scriptures Second Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now hit the pause button. In its immediate setting, that passage is a reference to the immediate fulfillment of the promise, who is Solomon. But does Solomon reign forever? And beyond that, if you marry this promise to the things we've read in the Psalms, does Solomon have as the foundation of his throne righteousness and justice? You can count... You can count on one hand and not use all the fingers, the number of kings in the Old Testament who were good kings. Josiah was pretty good. Hezekiah was pretty good. But you see, the institution of the kingship across the whole of the Old Testament, frankly, is to set us up. For one major disappointment after another. And yes, you can add David to the list of kings who was a pretty good king, but what does he have in his resume? Person after person after person becomes an enormous disappointment. And in the second place, they don't reign forever. They die. They die. What does that create in the hearts of people who have been promised from the earliest moments of biblical history after the fall have been promised a conqueror? And to that initial promise are added all of these other promises and these characteristics and features of God and His character and this this King who is promised. What does it do? One disappointment after another, you begin to look away from earthly kings, don't you? You begin to look away from earthly kings. You begin to expect something better. When Mary heard this promise, think about this. When Mary heard this promise spoken to her by Gabriel, there had been no king in Israel for nearly 600 years. Zedekiah was the last. After watching Nebuchadnezzar kill his family, they plucked out his eyes. The last thing that Zedekiah saw was the death of his family. And then he was carried away in exile in chains. The last king of Judah. And for the next 600 years, The promises are still there, and they are ringing in the ears of Israelites. And one of them is this For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mary. Mary, he's going to be called Jesus. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. He's going to be called the Holy One. But Mary, this is what is going to happen to him. The Lord God Almighty will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will establish a kingdom that will never end. It will never end. That's why the heavens erupted with an explosion of song on the night That the child was born. Because the angelic host knew that the birth of the child was the beginning of the great reversal. The beginning of the work of God to undo all of the wreckage. forced upon the whole cosmos and the whole of the people of the world by the sin of Adam and by God Himself who, as we are told in Romans chapter 8, put everything under a curse. And you ask yourself, why would He do that? And here's the simple answer so that he could glorify his son as the one who would accomplish the great work of reversal. The great work of undoing the wreckage that flows out of the fall. Fast forward. Fast forward from Luke chapter 1 about 30 years to Mark chapter one. When Jesus appears. Some of you have heard me talk about this. A few of you have heard me talk about this ad nauseum. But fast forward to Mark chapter one. Folks, this is the grand narrative. This is the meta narrative. This is the great story. This is this is telling us what history is all about. When Jesus makes His appearance, proclaiming the Gospel of God, the good news of God, the good news which the Father had entrusted to the Son and which the Son brought with Him in His incarnation, the glad tidings... How are those glad tidings? How is that good news constituted, described, defined? Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Which is to say, repudiate the kingdoms of this world. Become a citizen of the long-awaited kingdom under the rule and reign of a righteous and just king who, as we will see, is also exceedingly, overwhelmingly compassionate. Become a citizen of that kingdom. Turn away from the kingdoms of this world. And enter the kingdom of the king of kings. And when Jesus begins his ministry after he calls his first disciples in Mark's gospel, chapter one, verse 21, what is his first mighty act? What is his first miracle? What is the first thing that he does to show himself as the long awaited Messiah and King? He delivers a demon possessed man. He makes his first assault on the kingdom of Satan. He begins the work of crushing the serpent under his feet. And through the rest of the gospel of Mark, Jesus the king shows himself to be righteous and just. Shows himself to have power and authority to reverse and overcome all of the ravaging effects of sin and the fall. Bruce Waltke, in his biblical theology, uses a word, uh, never ever used before, and I haven't used it that much since I first read it, but I was glad to be reminded of it this last week. It is the word eruption. Not eruption, but eruption. I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. An eruption is an explosion that goes outward. An eruption is an explosion that goes inward. And in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the God of heaven and earth who rules and reigns over everything erupts his kingdom into the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And he does that in King Jesus. And through the life and death, and resurrection, and subsequent ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father, where He is clothed with power and glory. Read Daniel 2, read Daniel 4, read Daniel 7. He is clothed with power and glory. His kingdom, by the power of His Spirit, poured out upon His church. His kingdom, having taken root In his incarnation, in his life and ministry, is now erupting into the whole of the world among the nations of the earth. What happened back there? What happened back there when Gabriel spoke to Mary? What happened? when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary in some miraculous, supernatural way, she conceived in her womb, she conceived a child both fully human and fully divine, who grew across the nine months of that gestational period and was subsequently born, what happened? God planted His King and His kingdom squarely in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, and that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which will never end and right now King Jesus having come is ruling and reigning and moving everything in the direction of this final and glorious consummation and the last sounds of victory and the last strokes of judgment against all sin and unrighteousness, and even the devil and all of his minions will be executed. Oh, what a season to be in. And what kind of king is King Jesus? Here's your reading assignment for this week. It's Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. And then Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. I was in a conversation with a dear friend this last week who pointed this out to me, who helped me see something that I just had never, ever seen before. In fact, like my friend, I didn't like Luke chapter 18, the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. I didn't like that parable. I hate to admit that to you, but I didn't like that parable. And the reason is I struggle deeply to be persistent in prayer and holding this very godly and righteous woman up before me and having people tell me that I need to be more like this woman just doesn't help me. But my friend pointed out three things. Number one, there is a connection between chapter 17 and chapter 18. And you should read them together because the end of chapter 17 is about the kingdom of God. And Jesus' assurance that that kingdom will come to full expression. And it is in that connection that Jesus tells the parable of the unjust judge who neither fears God nor man and views this woman as an irritation. And the fourth thing about her is that she doesn't have an advocate in that culture. If you were a woman and you went to a judge, you had to have an advocate. You had to have a husband. You had to have a brother. You had to have some male who would get you through the door into the presence of the judge. She didn't have an advocate. She must have waited a long, long time to get in to see the judge after everybody else's business was done. And when Jesus uses this parable to encourage his disciples in connection with his promising to them that this kingdom will most certainly come to fruition, he's holding this parable up. As a counterintuitive way of instructing us, saying God is not like the judge. And the one who is standing in the shadows of this parable, even as he tells this parable, is Jesus himself, who both fears God and has respect for men and who never views you as an irritation In fact, is your advocate. What kind of king do you have? You have a king who loves to serve his father, who delights in his father. What kind of king do you have? You have a king who cares about the distresses of people, you have a king who doesn't see you as an irritation. I saw the movie Lincoln this last week you know in Lincoln's time there's a scene from this film that describes that in Lincoln's day when he was president of the United States people would actually line the corridors of the White House to get in to see the president you see you have an advocate. Do we see that? You have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is at the right hand of the Father. He is there for you. He is there to lead you into the Father's presence. The Father who loves you, who's given the Son, who delights in Him, who cares about you, and who never ever sees you as an irritation. What kind of king do you have? And what kind of kingdom is this? Jesus has planted this kingdom, in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, and it will never end. As I scan the room this morning, I know most of the faces, I know most of the names. I have deep confidence that the faces I know and the names I know know that this gospel is true. I want you to believe it, my friends. This king has come. This kingdom is real and it will never end. And this is the kind of king that King Jesus is. And if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know this king and doesn't know about this kingdom, but there's something in your heart that says, I want to be in a place like that. Please come and see me. Please come and see me. Please cry out to the king because he loves new citizens in his kingdom. This is a great season. And when you see those lights going up and those trees being purchased, and when you're buying those gifts and wrapping those packages just Remind yourself that Jesus has planted his kingdom and he's gathered you into it. And it is a kingdom that will never end. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, encourage the hearts of your people with these words. And as we make our way through these next days, may we celebrate well. May we thank you well. May we know your presence among us well. May we know your tender compassion and mercies, which are new every morning. May we know your cleansing power, for we carry with us the ravages, the residue, the odor, the effects of the sin of Adam. Would you also, Lord Jesus, stir up our hope, because the day is coming when none of it, none of it, as Isaiah said, will be remembered anymore. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hear our prayers. We make them in your name. Amen.